The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. With Colour Trend Paint on News Talk. Hello, and you're welcome along to the latest episode of The Home Show podcast. I'm Sinead Ryan. Coming up today, if you fancy travelling in style on the Orient Express this summer, or just taking the train to Cork for your holiday, interest in rail travel is increasing year on year. Simon Calder will be joining me from the UK Independent to chat about it. Minister Malcolm Noonan will be here to talk about the Irish Heritage Trust's 10-year plan. We'll learn how to make the perfect cup of coffee at home. And Natasha Rocker-Devine will be here with all her sustainable interior tips. If you'd like to get involved in the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Emailing us through thehomeshow at newstalk.com will guarantee it's get read. And of course, I'm over on Instagram at Sinead underscore Ryan. Now, you are very welcome along to the show today. We have lots uh, coming up and uh, I do really uh, start my day and start today and start every day with the strongest cup of coffee that I can get my hands on because everybody in here knows that I am good for nothing without it. So I am really looking forward later on in the show to be joined by somebody who is going to tell me how to make the perfect cup. And we've all become a bit of a coffee addict, haven't we? We've certainly become more knowledgeable about it and goodness knows we are spending more money on it because uh, it seems to me you can't get a decent cup uh, in this town for less than three quid or more. Uh, So let me know what your favourite coffee is, how to take it, how to brew it and what your tips and tricks are and uh, we'll incorporate them later on in the show. And in the meantime, why don't you grab yourself a nice cup of tea or coffee and settle back and listen to The Home Show. Of course, rail travel is a booming side of the travel industry, according to those in the business. It's steadily rising in popularity and many governments see rail travel as an important part of their commitments to sustainability and carbon neutral targets. Uh, But many customers, of course, now want to travel more meaningfully uh, by train and perhaps more romantically. And joining me now is travel correspondent for the UK independent newspaper, Simon Calder. Simon, you're very welcome to The Home Show. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much. And um, I'm delighted to say that I've actually been on a midnight train to <laughs> Georgia. Um, and this is one which sets off from uh, Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan, actually um, shortly after 9pm. And you get uh, you reach the Georgian border around midnight. This is, of course, in the Caucasus um, of, of between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea. Uh, it's a great journey. You'll meet all sorts of interesting fellow travellers and you arrive in Tbilisi, the capital, um, first thing next morning. So a great rail journey. Uh, of course, it's dark most of the time, but uh, even so, you're in a wonderful and exciting part of the world. Possibly not the Georgia that Gladys Knight had in mind, but definitely you couldn't miss that marketing. And actually, isn't it the case now that some of the world's greatest journeys are by train? That nostalgia meets, um, I I suppose, modern transport now, modern travel. Uh, Yes, it certainly does. Now, I think you have to um, divide these up. If you are talking about the um, Orient Express, now, that is actually a historic train that doesn't run anymore. It used to connect um, Paris with Istanbul. However, what uh, a lot of people will think of is the Venice Saint-Paul Orient Express. This is a century old. And by the way, the, the plumbing has improved, but uh, still not perhaps up to um, five star standards yet. And that uh, trundles, um, well, it used to uh, London, you go get a train to uh, Folkestone and then go through to Calais or abandoning that because of Brexit. 
Um, so you'll now pick it up in Paris and travel across the uh, Alps to Venice. So that's a that's a great trip. However, it is enormously expensive. Mm. You know, think a couple of thousand euro, um, and uh, you will therefore um, be much better off. For example, as I've done, following the line of the old Orient Express, um, which will take you all the way from um, uh, well from Paris towards the the Balkans. Um, I've, I've done this in places like Serbia and Hungary. It's a fantastic line, and you really do feel as though you're reconnecting with the past, while at the same time paying very, uh, very reasonable prices. And um, there are some other journeys that I think kind of evoke that. I mean, you're getting an ever-changing landscape, and you're getting to kind of visit new countries with with great leisure, and you're avoiding airports, of course, which is always a good thing. The blue train in South Africa. I mean, most people will have heard of that, you know, or the Maharaja's Express in India. I mean, these are fantastic journeys to do. They certainly are, um, and uh, it's, it's terrific, as you say, to travel by train. However, I would always prefer, certainly in South Africa, just to be on the ordinary train. It's um, very good value. And furthermore, you meet the local people rather than lots of rich tourists. So so that's my kind of, um, uh, that, that's my general preference. Indian Railways, by the way, the biggest transport undertaking in the world um, it carries, I think, something like um, uh, 20 times more passengers even than Ryanair. So uh, wow. that gives you some idea of the, the scale of it. And uh, Indian trains, you've got the whole world there. It's, um, it's just a wonderful way to reconnect with humanity. So some of your favourite journeys then are, are not necessarily on the five star uh, kind of uh, experiences. No, and look, I'm uh, currently on Akil Island in the far west. And, uh, of course, this is connected or it used to be connected uh, with the fantastic uh, old um, uh, Great Western Railway. Um, Great Western and Midland Railway opened in 1897 between Westport and Akil. And uh, that's now splendidly being converted to a greenway so you can cycle along it. But in terms of active railways on the island uh, of Ireland, well, I I think actually just travelling south from Dublin to Wexford along the Wicklow coast is spectacular. I love the Belfast to Derry line, particularly in the uh, northwestern part um, going along the coast before you uh, just before you reach uh, Derry, and even. The dart um, around <laughs> Dublin Bay from Dunleary to Hope. I, I think that's a, a superb line. It gives you a wonderful sweep of coastline. It connects two really interesting um, locations and it just costs a few euros. So, that's right. uh, yes, wherever you're going, you don't need to go much further than Ireland. Then, all right, the, the Dublin Riviera, we call it, right? <laughs> and um, in terms then of people who don't want to splash out the thousands and thousands, and by the way, it is a lot of money to do one of these super grand journeys uh, across continents. But there are sleeper trains that you can take across the continent of Europe. Now, we're on a very small island. We don't have them here. But I believe that they go out of of London or you can do, say, London to Scotland. And and they're not overly expensive, but maybe you get the experience of sleeping on a train. Right. Really, really good point. Now, a lot of people will actually find that they can't sleep on the train because it's always sort of swaying. It's... uh, 
it's stopping, uh, they're coupling and decoupling. And yes, the uh, Scottish, the Caledonian sleeper, which runs from uh, London to Edinburgh to Glasgow, Fort William, Aberdeen and Inverness, that is now actually bordering on the luxury train. It has, uh, the price has increased um, uh, very significantly. If you still want something um, just a little bit different, then I would urge you to consider the uh, Cornish um, uh, night train. That goes from London Paddington through to Penzance, and that's kind of more normal prices. But it's coming back across the continent. It, it used to be the case, of course, before the low-cost airlines, that night trains were the way that pretty much anybody mm. got anywhere if you were travelling long distances in Europe. But there is a new um, company just starting up um, in, in the coming week, um, European Sleeper. It's going from effectively uh, Brussels and Amsterdam across to Berlin through the night. And the idea is that uh, it, it will um, bring back the classic overnight journey at an affordable price. It's a private um, enterprise. We will see how it gets on. I wish it every success. Now, of course, you, you made a point earlier um, that these are small spaces and, you know, it sounds very romantic and wonderful, but actually you're confined, you know, to this cabin, which I presume is a sofa during the day and converts into a bed at night. Have you any tips for travellers who are on a street sleeper plane about what to bring with you? I mean, this is even smaller than a cabin on a, on a ship. Oh, oh, sure. Yeah. Um, bring bring um, a, a sense of tolerance, really, <laughs> um, particularly if you're on a couchette. Now, if you've not been on a couchette, they're marvellous. They, they are kind of high density sleeping accommodation. If you can imagine an old fashioned railway compartment with three hammocks down each side, that's what you get. And um, uh, you've got no control over who your uh, who your roommates are. Um, you, uh, you're you basically just sort of stuck there um, with them. And, um, yeah, normally I can get a fairly decent night's sleep. And because it's a, a budget option, it's fairly uh, fairly low cost. I would um, recommend it more highly than, um, for example, the uh, American sleeper trains. Now, rail travel, uh, I mean, as I was saying, has become trendy again. You mentioned there the Great Western Railway. A lot of the rail lines, of course, that have closed over the years in favour of car and and plane travel. Um, Do you think that there is a kind of more eco-conscious view about rail travel now and perhaps, um, you know, more investment by governments to bring it back as a serious option for travel over, over planes? Oh, yeah. Look, I would love to um, see some of the uh, great lines across um, Ireland restored. Um, the thing is that, because um, uh, I've been travelling um, through the northwest for the whole week, and it would be superb to see uh, some of the, 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 the remains of the lines that I've seen tracing, uh, linking communities uh, restored. Mm. However, that's genuinely not going to happen um, all we can hope for in Ireland is a kind of gradual acceleration, particularly uh, on the key lines um, from, from Dublin to, mm. to Cork, to Galway, to uh, uh, Belfast. Um, but more widely, yes, across continental Europe, the trains are getting better the whole time. And tellingly, the French have said that they want to replace all domestic flights with um, uh, effectively um uh, trains, high-speed trains, where those exist. Having said that, if you look at the detail, really there is um, 
uh, it's only going to affect about, about one in 20 um, domestic flights mm. within um, mm. France. And um, actually, many of the uh, uh, routes are still perfectly on sale. So um, uh, it, it's a combination of, of taxing aviation and uh, improving rail services will get us there, but it's going to be a slow old journey. It is indeed, and it's such ex- expensive uh, money to, to put in the infrastructure. Are you able to tell us why you're in Ireland and specifically Ackle, Simon? Ah, well, I'm following the Wild Atlantic Way. <laughs> um, the greatest um, tourism marketing innovation, I think I've seen <laughs> probably in my career, genuinely, because um, it's... Uh, uh, all it does is it connects existing roads along the uh, uh, west coast. It opens up the northwest in a very tourist-friendly mm. way. And everyone I've spoken to, whether they are tourists enjoying it like me or whether they are tourism professionals, um, uh, says it has been transformational. And, of course, Scotland's already nicked the idea with the um, North Coast 500. So, uh, But, but a, a, um, a, a triumph, and it's taken me to Ackle, it's taken me along the coast of Donegal, um, all sorts of new places that I would never have discovered. And can I ask you now, because there's an awful lot of coastline there, a lot more than it looks with all the ins and outs and the coves yes. and inlets, are you cycling it? Are you doing oh, no, it in a I'm, more efficient I, way? I, I, I'm, I'm actually doing a bit of cycling today along the uh, Greenway, but mostly mostly in a um, very uh, economical car. Right, OK. Now, you have been uh, writing for a terribly long time uh, about travel and all things related. How did you get started, Simon, in the business? You worked well, in the well, airport. Uh, uh, well, yes, I, I, I used to um, frisk people at Gatwick Airport. Um, it was a hobby, not a job. Um, and this was in the olden days of the uh, 1970s when... Um, the idea of actually flying um, to Ireland was just so completely off the scale. It was just an impossible dream. And yet, uh, at the end of this week, I'm flying back from Knock to uh, London Stansted. I'm paying um, €16 Euro, uh, for the uh, the privilege of um, flying with the world's safest airline. And um, uh, the transformation has been wonderful. It took me, when I first came to Ireland, nearly half a century ago, it took me 24 hours to hitchhike from, from London. Um, it's going to take me an hour to get back. And, of course, I've been back many, many times since. And I welcome the uh, uh, opportunities and, of course, the welcome when I get here. Indeed. And you have a podcast, which is uh, very successful. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, every day, wherever I am, I'm broadcasting, uh, I'm podcasting um, about uh, key issues in travel or, indeed, the great places um, where I am uh, lucky enough to find myself um and in particular this is uh, i've had several podcasts i've been traveling down the um uh the wild atlantic way uh, talking to all sorts of uh, fascinating people and you can find them independent uh, just search online simon calder independent podcast and you will find uh, dozens, far more episodes than you could possibly ever want. <laughs> Shake a stick at, all right. And finally, just for Irish travellers heading out now, we know the airports are incredibly busy at the moment. Lots and lots of Irish people will be travelling uh, to Britain and to London specifically. We have heard nothing but problems at Heathrow Airport. Are, are they sorted now? And I'm thinking particularly at Terminal 5, there were problems with bags and baggage handlers and things going missing and people not being able to find other people. Where is where is that situation now, Simon? Uh, look, we are now um, back on to another strike by security staff at Heathrow Terminal 5. That's the uh, 
named British Airways Terminal for um, at Dublin. Um, Aer Lingus actually uses Terminal 2. Uh, it's not having too much of an impact at the moment, but it is a very big, very complex um, airport. We are now back to the pre-COVID levels of aviation. And uh, so loads of people going through, all a bit creaking around the edges. Mm. And so, um, as always with travel, just hope for the best yeah. Be prepared for delays and disruption. Yeah, indeed. All right. Simon, you're an absolute pro. Thanks a million. We'll let you go and enjoy the West. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye. Now, the Irish Heritage Trust has unveiled its 10-year plan, including a a 5.2 million euro refurbishment of its property at 11 Parnell Square in Dublin. The trust was founded in 2006. It's a national organisation with four landmark heritage properties currently in its portfolio. I'm joined by Minister Malcolm Noonan, Minister of State for Heritage and Electoral Reform, uh, to chat about this. You're very welcome to the Home Show. We have had you on before, so welcome back. It's great to be here. Great to be back again. (laughs) Now, uh, talk to me a little bit about how the Heritage Trust operates and and why we have it and what it's all about. So the Heritage Trust, as you you rightly said, was set up in 2006 as a not-for-profit and uh, a registered charity. And it's, it's... its role really is to provide that middle ground between um, public heritage organisations such as the OPW mm. and our National Monument Service um, and the owners of um, of private property. So its job really is to 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 straddle that that gap that that perhaps is is not there sometimes with. Uh, Particularly large heritage estates that need that have complex management uh, needs, and to the idea around um, the trust uh, is to be able to generate tourism and local employment opportunities, to strengthen people's interest in in the heritage in these heritage estates, and to, to foster wider engagement through community participation. And they have a very large volunteering program, which uh, I've I've met uh, most recently in Johnstown Castle. I think currently they have about 400 volunteers, mm. which is phenomenal. So they're out literally they, are, working in the gardens. Are these people who are, have an interest in, in kind of old houses and gardens or, or are they on diversion programmes or where do you get them from? They are all of the above. And, they, uh, you know, the people I met come from very diverse backgrounds, some retired, some um looking for other job paths and job opportunities and using volunteering as a as a pathway through that uh, but all of them bringing amazing skills I mean I met professionals people uh, who have a very uh, really specific skills around heritage conservation around uh, you know picture frame gilding uh, around um, craft gardening mm-hmm. Uh, traditional joinery, thatching, all sorts of skills that they bring to the fold that are there to support the management of these heritage properties. And particularly in, in Johnston, where they have a, a fantastic um, a rural museum there, uh, they're, you know, the curator of that, they're doing amazing work just in, in when the public come in, that interface with the public around uh, highlighting the importance of these uh, places. Yeah, and we've four in the trust. So Johnstown Castle, as you as you mentioned, down in Wexford. Strokestown Park, of course, lots and lots of people will be familiar with in Roscommon because that has the Famine Museum and it has all the uh, old skills and we've spoken to them before on the show. Photo House, uh, I don't think maybe many people realise that is in the trust. But the other one, uh, which I'm not familiar with, is 11 Parnell Square. Tell me a little bit about that property. 
Yeah, 11 Parnell Square is really interesting. And uh, being from Kilkenny, there's a Kilkenny connection with the Butler family, obviously. Mm. And um, so the Parnell Square is, uh, is a, a really wonderful historic property that was uh, constructed back in the, in the 1750s. And one of the first townhouses on that really important uh, Georgian Square. Mm. And I, I think it, it started off as a family home to the, uh, I think the 17th Earl of Ormond, John Butler. And he was an MP from 1740 to 95. Uh, so one of the butlers of Kilkenny Castle and the descendants of, of the 10th Earl of Ormond. And he constructed the house in a, a very beautiful style and and a, a four-storey over-basement, five-bay Georgian uh, building. Um, it, it has a very um, interesting history in that uh, it later became a civic building mm. uh, Right up to the 1980s, I believe, for Fingal County Council. So, uh, so it had to be refurbed back then to it its did, original. Yeah, so there's a council chamber in there on right. the, on the second floor, and it's an amazing space. Um, all to all intents and purposes, looks like a, a council chamber. Beautiful oak panelled walls, and because these were very grand, large houses in they their were, day. Yeah, they were. I'm, I'm thinking 5.2 million. A lot of people will think that's a great deal of money, but. It doesn't go f- like I mean, a, li- a little does not go a long way in these properties. What kind of restructural work had to be done? It's going to be really significant. I mean, I got to walk through the property on the day of the launch of the strategic plan, and of that five point two million, twenty five percent of that is philanthropic funding, which is really great to see, and that's coming from so the the. When it is completed, it it obviously will, is already home to the Irish Heritage Trust. Mm. It'll also be home to Poetry Ireland and um, to the Irish Landmark Trust. So there's there'll be a number of of tenants in there. Uh, I met with Poetry Ireland there as well, and they they, they occupy a lovely space there. So you know, five point two million, you literally wouldn't see it in in mm. a particularly in a, a complex conservation project like this. It also has to meet fire reg standards, and it has to meet access standards. So in in terms of uh, the building, so there's elements of it that will have to be contemporary uh, in terms of so an add on. Talking about like ramps and rails and all that kind of thing in a building which was absolutely not designed for any of that. More uh, lift infrastructure, and that would oh, be right, probably okay. added on to the. Yeah. near the building but it has um, you know beautiful uh, features on the back of the building as well as, as it has on the front so you have to protect all of that so some of that infrastructure can be placed inside the frame of the building yeah. uh, so it's in, in many ways it's it's you know it's a really around good conservation architecture around designing that in such a way that it is uh, inconspicuous and and not intruding on the the historic fabric because the the building internally has it's it's able to tell its stories through the various interventions that have mm. taken place through the centuries more recently in the 1920s and 30s where there's a an art uh, nouveau style of lanterns and uh, wallpaper and uh, handrails in it and and then there's the the council chamber, which I think could be a fantastic mm. space for debates, for talks, for recitals. Um, there's the, the beautiful old pull down uh, uh, maps of the of the constituency and the the mayor's uh, top table. All of that is there, and it's just really special to see it. So I think they have a fa- they have a, a huge challenge ahead, but mm. I think there's no shortage of conservation expertise in this country, both from architects and skilled professionals to carry yeah, out Yeah, and, and I think probably it. no short of will um, both inside and outside government at recognising the importance of our heritage and not trying to kind of uh, swap, God forbid, turn it into a hotel or, you know, seems to be the case in every second building, certainly in Dublin at the moment, and it was down in Cork recently, it's same there. Um, so that 
energy that needs to be put into refurbishing, expensive though it is and specialist that it is. And I, I don't want to be kind of accused of what aboutery, but there is always that dichotomy when you're looking at money of this level, that it, what other use, you know, what's the foregone cost of, of spending something like five million quid on, on one property here when you have so many other needs, um, I mean, just even in accommodation and property needs, it is a difficult circle to square, Minister. I don't think so. I think if you look at at creating a building like this as an exemplar on a historic square in Dublin, if you look at places like Mount Joy Square in Dublin, where there's a fantastic community there, there's the opportunity uh, to use buildings like this to, as a, from a learning point of view to repurpose so much of George and Dublin back mm-hmm. for accommodation for people to live in for social housing and you know there, there's there is an example there in Gardner in Gardner Street as well where a number of properties have been uh, repurposed back into social housing mm. so there's uh, you know I think this is an investment it's an investment in skills in professional skills professional crafts professional services and a repurposing of a building that otherwise could have fallen into a state of disrepair as we've seen in much of George and Dublin and in Limerick and in Cork mm. Uh, throughout the country, we have to find a use for these these buildings, and I think in that uh, these these should be multifaceted. Uh, the, the the skills required in, in bringing them back into use mm. is important. But secondly, I think, and this is a headache for local authorities, uh, is to, is to try and find a sustainable use for them. And I think a housing solution is one. Indeed. Now, I mean, I can't let you go without talking to you about that other property matter because one of the solutions that's been bandied about at the moment for our refugee situation, uh, Ukrainians and otherwise, um, is the idea of flow tells. These boats sitting out on docks and on the bay. Is that the best we can do, Minister? Is this what we're reduced to, putting people up in, in ca- containers out in the sea? We're, we're in a real crisis with accommodation. We never in anticipated, no, nobody could have anticipated the war in Ukraine. Plus we have a major global um, refugee crisis with many millions of people displaced internally in their own countries and, and within their own regions, but through conflict, through climate change, through a myriad of issues. I so, know, but it's uh, embarrassing, isn't it? It's not. I think it's important that the state responds and the state has responded very, very well we haven't gotten it all right. I think communities have been fantastic. I know that from... Um, Some communities. Pardon? Some communities. I, I, look, the, the challenge is is immense. And I think it's important from our perspective to communicate effectively, to give support to communities and to, to ensure the vast majority of Irish people are welcoming to refugees. And mm-hmm. I think we have to look at all options. Um, my own view is that we need to start building in permanent capacity and mm. uh, notwithstanding that we have a housing crisis as well, build in permanent capacity to support uh, displaced peoples, to support refugees and asylum seekers because these, the, the if you look at the global trends and particularly the displacement through climate change, this is going to continue for many, many years and decades to come. So we have to, we have to respond. We have a duty to respond and um, it, none of this is easy but I think uh, local authorities have been fantastic and government is responding mm. in the in the best way that we can. I mean, these people, these hundreds and thousands of people, I mean, in time may become our new heritage. 
Absolutely, and they will. And, and I think what, what I'm finding, um, uh, particularly in my own community, but as I travel the country as well, uh, we want to ensure that our heritage is inclusive. Uh, in in the, uh, we support my department supported the funding of an inclusive heritage officer with the Heritage Council mm. to ensure that our new communities feel that their heritage is celebrated in Ireland as well. And I think there's there's something wonderful happening in that regard. We want. Uh, everyone to be able to, to celebrate the properties that we talk about in the care of the Irish Heritage Trust but also in my care uh, both through national monuments uh, through our national parks our nature reserves that everyone should feel included right. OK Minister Malcolm Noonan uh, Minister of State for Heritage and Electoral Reform thank you for coming in and telling us all about the Irish Heritage Trust today as I'm sure you'll have noticed in towns and villages and cities across the country we have gone a bit coffee mad but it is making the best cup at home it's still a bit of a mystery and the filters and the contraptions and the machines and the kettles and all of that Uh, so joining me now uh, to talk a little bit about our fascination with coffee and of course trying to get the perfect cup is Luke Crahan of Coolhand Coffee in Dublin who has just set up Rise and Grind Coffee Brewing Workshops for beginners. Luke, you're very welcome along to the Home Show. Hi, Sinead. How are you? Good to see you. Now, let me start by telling you, you're on safe ground here. We're all coffee addicts yeah. on the Home Show. And when you work on a radio station, you kind of get powered by coffee from four in the morning onwards. Um, talk to me a little bit about Cool Hand Hot Coffee. I'm getting the pun and the Luke and all that. Yes, yeah, yes very bit. good. Very there's good. a little bit of that, all right. Um, <laughs> talk to me a little bit about what you do. Well, I suppose what we do is we set up a roaster in Kilmainham about a year ago and we have another one in the IFSC and we opened up a new one about eight months ago in Baggett Street, which probably brings a coffee to a totally different experience where you walk into the shop and you can see all the green beans actually on your left-hand side. You can go over and pick them, pick whichever one you want, bring it over to the counter and they'll actually roast it there and then for you. Oh, right. So we've about 16 different types of green coffee bean there. They're all single origin coffee, direct from the farmers. Um, And it's really... You know, it's it's a totally different experience in how people would view coffee in Dublin currently. So when you say you roast them there, so all coffee beans are green until oh, yes. they're roasted. Is that it? Yeah, that's correct. And and how long does the roasting process take? It depends. Like like we have a small roaster in, in Baggett Street and it could take maybe 15, 20 minutes to roast a bean. But you do need to give it a couple of days to relax and breed. Right. You know, so... You can't actually drink it probably for five days to seven days afterwards. But we have beans already roasted there. So you can go in and you can actually sample one of the 16 different countries we have. So you could go in and say, well, I think I'll have an Ethiopia today and (laughs) flat white or Uganda. So it's really, it's very much your own preference. And what's the difference between the different countries? Because, I mean, I go, you know, when I'm buying coffee and I do like to grind beans, but you have Italian or French or Guatemalan or whatever. Is there a significant difference? Is it down to the soil? Is it a bit like wine? It is, yeah, very much. Like different regions of the world have different tastes and textures and aromas. So like it's, you know, it's very much like wine. It's it's someone's preference. Um, But in different regions in the world, it all has a different flavour, a different taste, 
You know, and then when it comes to the roasting, what way you roast, it gives it a different profile. Now, when you're making them at home, I mean, it's one thing going into a barista who's an expert and knows exactly what they're doing. But when you're trying to replicate that at home, it can be a little bit difficult. And some of those, the machinery, the cost of it is astronomical. It is. Like, I suppose that's why we're doing these brewing classes in the cool hand to sort of try and try and give the average consumer a little bit more knowledge. And you don't really have to be really, really into it, but, you know, you want the basic level. And I think that's where the the classes that we're doing now gives the normal coffee drinker a little insight how to do it properly. Okay, talk to me about the different um, workshops, because one is the introduction. That's the one to kind of get started and find out what's what. Yeah, like there's the introduction to um, coffee brewing, which will sort of give you... It'll give you an insight into the different grinds, how whether it's fine, whether it's coarse, or whether it's it's medium grind, mm. and they all have different. They all work well with different sort of machines, be it a French press, all mm. these machines. Mm. So you. So depending on what you're depending using, depending on it what matters. you're using, okay. You know, you brought in some beans uh, with you. Let's we'll yeah. take a look and see what they uh, well, what they have here. What now. I've done here is I've I've brought in three different types of coarse, fine, and medium blend, or medium medium type of coffee. Yeah. So there's not a test coming out of this. Now. Mm, well, <laughs> but it is early in the morning, so I'm up for the coffee challenge. It is so. For instance, there our most popular one would be Brazil, which would is be is it okay? It would, yeah, Brazil. Right. Brazil seems to be the one that's most palatable that the Irish people like. It's a nice balanced blend. Yeah, and then okay. you'd probably have Colombia. Okay. Oh, and of course, people love the Colombian blend. It's quite rich. They do. Yeah, it's very like rich. For, like Let me have a taste of the Brazilian one, and we'll we'll have a our smell of the Brazilian one. Right, we don't I, have. We didn't bring on our machinery. I'll, I'll open up the coarse one here. Coarse one. Okay. Does the smell change depending on the grind? It does. You tend to find the finer it's grind down, the more rich it is. And that goes for, uh, if you were looking for a quicker espresso type taste, a richer taste. All right, let's so have a, let's have have a, a smell there. there. That's, oh, the, that's the coarse. Oh, it is delicious. That's the coarse oh, grind. Gorgeous. That's Brazilian. Cor- that, oh, that's a coarse grind. That looks quite a, fine to yeah, me now. Yeah, it's a coarse grind and okay. that's ideal for the French press, which yeah. taste, takes a the slightly cafetier. longer process, you know, and it's a slower, getting the flavours slower out. All right. And this, this one is then? a medium. A medium. Oh, yeah. You can see it looks a little bit different there. OK. Oh, yeah. I can see it's kind of... It's a little softer, maybe, it is, is that yeah. it? A little less intense. It, it is, yeah. And that's ideal for the AeroPress. Oh, they're posh now, aren't they? No, the AeroPress. Everybody loves those. And this is the fine blend. Okay. Even though these are all Brazilian coffees, there's a distinct difference there between is. the smell there. There is. And that's oh, ideal I think for I like mocha. the first one, but that's only because I'm <laughs> I like it a bit strong in it. Okay. And what's your own personal favourite, Luke? Well, I'm actually probably more of a flat white man. All right, you know, okay. Yeah. And, you know, that that's that's my preference. Very good. And where can people find out more about now the courses and the coffee shop and all of that? Well, if they go onto our website, coolhandcoffeeroasters.ie, all the information is there. The contact details for the people who will be doing the courses, um, they'll be there and literally just get in touch. Brilliant. All right. Well, listen, thanks for bringing us uh, the very tempting uh, flavours and smells into the home show this morning. We're delighted to have you in and uh, and best of luck with, with all of that. Thanks very much, Sinead. 
sustainability is a word kind of bandied about regularly and it's become harder, I think, to discern how or where we can incorporate those principles into our lives and indeed our homes. Well, here to help us with some practical hacks is interior designer Natasha Rocket-Divine. And Natasha, you're very welcome. Thank back you to very the much for studio. having me. Pleasure as always. Now, it's, it's really important. OK, so get, let's get that out there. Upcycling, recycling, reusing, all that kind of thing is very, very important. And we all want to do more of it. Absolutely. When it comes to interior design, it seems to me that what people actually want is for everything to look new and fresh and vibrant and different. So is there a kind of a jarring principle there at work or, or do you find in your work that people are actively looking for more sustainability in what, what they do in their homes? I think now, I think since lockdown, we've all spent a lot of time at home and people are looking to change it. But also, I think it reminded us of the like how life can change in a, in a heartbeat. And I think just to kind of look back to the simplicity of life and looking back to like historic pieces and our, our family's heirlooms and things like that. So I think sustainable and then obviously just being eco-friendly and conscious. So I do think a lot of people genuinely want sustainable design. But as you said, everyone wants it to look amazing. Mm. And that's the tricky part. So I think there's a trend that I'm spotting right now it kind of you know a couple of trends we can go through so for example um, like I suggest reuse and recycle so in that sense you know using reclaimed wood recycled metal you know just using the different finishes when you're doing up your home So it's new to you but it's not new Exactly so that's a way of keeping it new and fresh but then another option would be for something like kitchenrespray.com so like for example, with them, you can, and uh, Lisa Cannon and I were talking about this, you can bring two different kitchens together. They can respray it. So say if you like kind of doors on something, you know, you've got it from a vintage shop and then something, different doors, you can put them together, they can respray it and match it up. Like you, So you're bringing old and new okay. together. Or okay. if you've an existing kitchen, it's 15 to 20% the cost of getting it redone. I've done it myself. Okay, I've, so had, yes. I've had wooden presses uh, in the past dipped. You know, they, yeah, they yeah, take them the off. Thing, yeah. And they spray them up and they send them back, which means you're not building new structures, you're not building new spaces, you're not trying to fit or jam in or shoehorn in new cupboard doors. But actually, it can look really fresh. Be beautiful. And you put on new knobs new and knobs handles and all, and all that. And that. Makes so that's what it is. I think that's like it's always bringing back the newness. I think you, you highlighted at the beginning. It's not making it look old and, you know, um, don't you know just kind of outdated but definitely keeping that freshness there and also you can make it stylish you can pick any colour you want then we're moving more into um, historic trends it's very historic. I know I, I don't think yeah. I'm cool enough to even say this word so it combines <laughs> hip and historic and it started in 2013 where people basically were re. I suppose it's just like what we're saying for a whole space they came into spaces and they re-salvaged everything that was in it and that's a huge trend now it's a like, very very popular a lot of TV shows you know magazines um, and online people coming in and changing spaces so it's basically I would say the equivalent is mid-century modern bringing together modern um, new and old and making it even better but not like looking through the, the space and saying what can I keep you know versus what am I throwing out which would be mm. the go to you know when mm. you're moving into a new place like I'm gonna, gonna have everything Skip fresh Skip out the front Exactly it all in So instead yep. of doing that um you know, just to keep it as straightforward as possible, keep what you can and then bring in eco-friendly as way, you know, buying antique, um, you know, upcycling furniture, using kind of just local brands. And I think people forget that as well. Um, Sinead, it's like you can actually, if keeping a fair trade, keeping it local, keeping it Irish, that's a way of helping. You know, it doesn't have to be all eco-friendly. It's actually instead of ordering online from Spain, keep not that you shouldn't, but if, you know, keeping it to a local mm. brand, that's mm. also helping the carbon footprint. So simple ways of doing that. How hard is it to find um, people who can, say, restuff an armchair 
or oh, there's so know, many talented people in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. we have and, a lot. And of people. Do you think there's more now that they're bi- they're kind of buying into this Zeitgeist and setting yeah. up shop to do absolutely. that alterations yeah, and changing absolutely. rather than rather than newness? You, even if you looked on Instagram or like mm. TikTok is the way forward, um, you know. But looking on Instagram because you can see kind of reviews and things like that, you can find people online. Because years ago, I totally agree with you. When I first started, when I came back from America, I found it really nearly impossible to get a poster. Whereas now you can find them everywhere. You know, like even mm. people do them as mixers. There's and they'll do it much faster and probably cheaper. So I think lockdown brought a lot of this creativity out of people. And I think people can genuinely help you on once-off pieces. And then a lot of people are trying themselves and doing amazing at it. So I think it's pushing people to test their own limits. To give it a go. And maybe starting with, I mean, goodness knows there's enough YouTube videos, but giving it a go with maybe a side table that you're not kind of precious about. Absolutely. Just to to try it out. And And sand it down and re-varnish it or repaint it or even just put on, you know, stencils and things. Especially if it's for a family home, you could make it fun for a children's room. Or There's ways around it. But I think that's one thing that I love. I like social media media is a blessing and a curse I think yeah. a lot of people agree but it's so amazing to mm. see what people can do you just look like as a designer I'm not competitive I'm like looking at people I'm like wow you know like looking at their talents and what they do in a very simple ways and I think we discussed it like taking off the knob so putting on gold and mm. spraying it green or something like it's very opulent with the gold like not mm. gold handles at the end is really transfor- transformative say for a cabinet or you know you could put on different legs on a table so simple mm. And, and it allows you then, I mean, something as simple as changing knobs or handles means that you can then echo whatever colour you've used in a cushion Absolutely. or in a throw in and then the whole thing just ties together yeah, and, it's, and all then, very, it's all very simple. And then bringing in obviously Irish brands and things like that. Just, just We've got beautiful talents in Ireland with textures yeah. and things. Okay, well listen, uh, if you want to find out more about Natasha Rocketvine, of course, her Instagram handle... Natasha, Natasha Rockadevine. <laughs> no missing that. And of course, your podcast, Space to Grow, which is all about interiors and space and how people live and all of that. Thank you so much for joining us again on The Home Show. It's always great to have you uh, in studio. Thank Natasha so Rockadevine, author and interior specialist. Thanks for joining us on The Home Show. Now, that is all we have time for on a packed schedule this week. As always, if you'd like to get involved in the show, you'd like to get in touch with us, give out to us, compliment us. Ask us to do something. It is by 53106 for 30 cent by text or indeed uh, email throughout the week at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. I'll be on Instagram at Sinead underscore Ryan. And don't forget to check out the podcast if you missed any of the items or would just like to listen back to them again. Uh, it is up on the News Talk website or wherever you get your pods from. Thanks to Aoife Breen producing today. On sound, Stephen McLoon and Peter Malloy. Up next, it's Anton Savage. Have a fantastic weekend. We'll be back next Saturday at eight o'clock. The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. With Colour Trend Paint on News Talk.